Good evening. Uh, I am Christopher Polk, a professor in the finance department and the director of the Financial Markets Group uh, here at the London School of Economics. Uh, welcome to a public lecture by Professor Lawrence Kotlikoff entitled, Jimmy Stewart is Dead, Ending the World's Ongoing Financial Plague with Limited Purpose Banking. This public lecture is an outgrowth of the London uh, Financial Regulation Seminar that is put on regularly by the Financial Markets Group. Uh, the Financial Markets Group is pleased uh, to join forces in organizing and uh, promoting this event with the Centauri and Toyota International Centers for Economics and Related Disciplines here at the LSE. Thanks for that. So from the perspective of an economist, we live in very interesting times. We were just talking about this. Uh, the, the problems associated with high gearing are well known before the recent financial crisis. The events of the last two years have made these problems even more apparent. Uh, from a public policy perspective, one of the most significant costs of the leverage of financial institutions is associated with systemic risk and the, the too-big-to-fail uh, subsidy that governments seem forced to extend. This systemic risk arises from the interconnectedness of financial institutions and the high societal costs associated with the failure of a large financial institution. The regulators try to control the amount of leverage. This governance is made difficult because leverage gives the shareholders and management of these institutions strong incentives to take on risk. As institutional frameworks appear to have failed us, our response to what we have learned over the past two years is crucial. Uh, otherwise, we fear we are doomed to repeat it. I want to stress the importance of a functional perspective. What we should take as given are the functional needs of the end users of these institutions, the entrepreneur borrowing to pursue a new idea, the family buying a house, the firm making payroll, not a particular form of institution. Institutions in the regulatory environment should evolve to best provide the essential functions necessary in a particular market. Tonight, we hear about the scathing critique of the existing financial institutional system and a radical proposal as to how best meet those functional needs. Uh, the research center I direct here at the LSE, uh, the Financial Markets Group, was founded uh, by none other than Mervyn King, uh, the governor of the Bank of England. And recently, the Times covered Mervyn <coughs> King's presentation to Parliament uh, on the future of Britain's banking sector. During that presentation, King explicitly referred to the ideas we will hear tonight from Professor Kotlikoff at least three times. In that piece, the Times said, quote, MPs were left scratching their heads over the identity of a little-known American economist, unquote. <laughs> I must correct the times. Professor Kotlikoff is far from little-known. He received his PhD from Harvard in 1977 and has taught or visited at UCLA, Yale, MIT, the Hoover Institute at Stanford, and currently is on the faculty of Boston University, where he is a William Fairfield Warren professor and a professor of economics. Uh, he is a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, a fellow of the Econometric Society, and he served on the Council of Economic Advisors under President Ronald Reagan. In terms of output, Professor Kotlikoff's record is outstanding. He has more than 50 articles and books with over 24 publications in the major economics journals. These include five in the Journal of Political Economy and 15 in the American Economic Review, one AER every other year since receiving his PhD, I hope my junior colleagues in the finance department can be so fortunate as to become that little known. Please welcome Professor Lawrence Kotlikoff. Thank you, that's a lovely introduction. Uh, well, it's a great pleasure to be here, an honor really. Uh, where We are in a very, uh, interesting time for economists, but for but a very uh, sad and unhappy time for most people. Uh, 
for a lot of people anyway. Uh, we have in the U.S., as I speak, roughly 10% of the uh, population unemployed. By some counts, 17% of the population are, are out of work. In certain groups, the percentage is much higher. We have millions of people have been foreclosed uh, from their homes. We've had retirees lose large fractions of their retirement incomes. We've had um, uh, great uh, you know, fear and anxiety uh, that's permeated the, the land, really, and people's views of the future and their beliefs about how their children are going to fare. So society is really pretty, pretty well psyched out in the U.S., and I'm sure that's also the case here in the U.K., and there's a lot of fear about how things will proceed. Uh, all of this despite the fact that we have a terrific new president, young president, who's very optimistic and is trying his best. And uh, we have um, some very brilliant economists running his economics team. And we have a Federal Reserve chairman who's demonstrated that he's willing to pull out all the stops needed to uh, keep the economy rolling. Notwithstanding all of that, we have uh, not a Wonderful Life, which is the uh, movie to which this Jimmy Stewart picture refers to, but rather a, a horrible mess. And uh, the first chapter of this book that's coming out on Monday, at least through Amazon, I don't know when it will be in the bookstores, is, uh, is called It's a Horrible Mess. And it, it describes um, that mess, but uh, throughout the book I'm trying to give an eco economist perspective on what actually what, what, what actually happened and how to fix it. And uh, the, uh, this proposal that I'm coming up with is, um, I think, the way to fix it. And it's been described uh, by most commentators as radical, quite different from what we now have. But I would say that it's actually not radical. I would say that the status quo is radical, and that's what I'm going to try and persuade you of tonight, that our financial system and the government's involvement in the financial system uh, have taken a situ situation which was very dangerous, and we saw uh, the uh, fallout from it and has made it even more dangerous in a number of ways. So I think uh, we are more or less driving over a cliff with a, a uh, Prius whose accelerator pedal is stuck. <laughs> and we have two options. We either stay in the car, which is the status quo, and that sounds like the conservative safe thing to do, or we maybe slow down the car to the extent we can, put it in first gear, or maybe even reverse, try and slow it down, and uh, jump out of the door right before it goes over the cliff. That, to me, is the safe, not the radical, uh, response to the situation. So I think we actually uh, are going to talk about a plan that's very safe and, the, and that maintaining what we've got is the radical option. Let me briefly mention what Jimmy Stewart is, uh, is Dead is about, uh, because many of you are not from the U.S., so you're not subjected to this movie, It's a Wonderful Life, every Christmas. Uh, you may be subjected to some other movie like, um, uh, I don't know, this must be a British equivalent every Christmas. But It's a Wonderful Life is a great movie. If you haven't seen it, I recommend it. It's about this banker, Jimmy Stewart, 
who uh, is a, a really nice, honest, trustworthy person. He knows everybody in town, and he runs a small neighborhood bank. And all of a sudden, there's a run on the bank because there's a rumor that he doesn't have enough money to cover the deposits. And the, uh, the rumor is spread by a bad guy, but in fact, the reality is that he doesn't have enough money to cover all the deposits. The reality is that Jimmy Stewart has engaged in deception and lied about the ability to pay de deposits on demand. He advertised that he was selling demand deposits. You give me your money, I'm going to give you back a demand deposit. You can come and get your money back anytime. And he didn't advertise the fact that if everybody comes and asks for their money back, he won't have it because he's going to have lent out almost all of it, which is a standard operating procedure for the banking system for quite a while. Bankers, when they have money in their hands, it feels like a, you know, it makes them very sweaty. They need to do something with it, and uh, they need to try and turn a profit with it. And so he see, faces this run on the bank, and he becomes despondent, and he uh, attempts suicide after uh, some bad scenes with his very nice family, because he's very upset. And uh, fortunately, God comes and rescues him in the form of an angel named Clarence. He's actually in the water drowning, and Clarence, if I recall the movie, it's been a couple of years since I even saw it, I should have gone to see it again uh, for, the, for the research on the book. Uh, I've got to confess, I didn't do my research fully. Uh, he, Clarence, as I recall, grabs him out of the water and gives him a pep talk and psychs up Jimmy to go back to the bank. And of course, Jimmy Stewart is a consummate actor. And um, uh, his name in the movie is George Bailey, and it's Bailey Savings Alone. And he gives this rousing speech to all the townspeople in the bank and convinces them that if they all ask for the money, they're going to put everybody under. And that it's in their collective interest not to take their money out. And by the end of the speech, people are not only are handing back the money they've withdrawn, but they're putting more money in the bank. And uh, this is Christmas Eve, and of course, uh, the rescue has come just in time. Everybody has a fantastic Christmas and the bad guy is disgraced, and you feel terrific, except you feel, when you really think about it, very nervous, because you realize that you're, you've just seen a movie about financial uh, fragility. You've seen a movie about a uh, financial system that at its core is not rock solid, that can switch from one equilibrium where the economy does well, the local economy in this context, but we can also talk about the national economy and even the international economy. Or we could flip to an equilibrium in which the economy coordinates on the belief that everybody is uh, panicked and upset and things are going to be bad, and that will be the outcome. Now, John Maynard Keynes really you know, told us about this in two words when he said animal spirits. Uh, those animal spirits were, are in, in, uh, in display in this movie, front and center. And you can see how the animal spirits can quickly change uh, based on a good speech or a prep rally or a sunspot. And there's lots of research on sunspot equilibria developed initially by Carl Schell and David Cass at the University of Pennsylvania and subsequently by a lot of other fine economists over the last uh, 
few decades that is not the Keynesian model of economics and it's not the Chicago school of economics where markets are perfect and we just have some technological shocks now and again. But there's a third model out there which is that uh, economies can have multiple equilibria and that there's no central market maker to clear markets perfectly as we, as our equations say should happen. But instead we can have um, situations where if everybody believes times are going to be bad, they will not put out the effort to find other people on the other side of the market and indeed, and those people will also not put out the effort and we will have a self-fulfilling expectation and bad times. And unless we can really turn that, those set of beliefs around, we can just st stay and stagnate in a bad equilibrium. We saw that in the 30s. We saw that the economy was depressed for a decade. It wasn't really until World War II that we got out of the uh, Great Depression, even though there were a couple periods of expansions. Just like right now, we're experiencing an expansion. There were two expansions during the Great Depression, but during that whole period, times were very tough. A lot of people were uh, very, very, you know, doing very, very poorly. The only industry that was really uh, doing well was the bread line. And that's one of the uh, growth industries in the U.S. right now, the bread line. Uh, food stamps are something that um, a large fraction of people are now, a, lot, a growing fraction of people are now uh, using to feed themselves. I think we have something like one in eight children in households who are on food stamps right now. So this is serious business, and we need a serious solution. And if this solution is the right solution, and I'm going to contend it is, then it has the potential for changing beliefs, flipping our economy from everybody nervous, everybody concerned about when this earthquake that we've just experienced is going to hit again, or if you want to refer to it as a financial plague, as, we, uh, as I do in the book, it's title, when that financial plague will come back. We do know that the Black Death didn't just come and go for a century. Uh, it typically came and then came back. And that's what I'm going to suggest can happen here. Now, let me tell you about what I know about financial malfeasance in the US. And uh, I'm sure you have your own uh, English version of this, British version. Uh, but uh, here are some of the components that uh, underlie what happened in our financial <coughs> debacle. First, we have limited liability, the fact that people are uh, setting up corporations and then they're no longer personally liable for what the corporation's debts are. And that leads them to be willing to take extra risk because they know they, their, their house is not at stake, uh, their livelihood is not at stake. When, when uh, Citigroup's price went from here down to zero, or close to zero, Robert Rubin, who was one of the uh, top players and former Secretary of Treasury on Citigroup's board, he, he didn't lose uh, all his, his life's uh, savings. He didn't lose his different homes or his yachts or whatever he ha happens to own because he had taken a good part of his $100 million compensation that he received after leaving the Treasury and working for Citigroup, and he had sold 
and he share you know he had taken that compensation and safely invested it so he was not personally really that concerned if you have a hundred million dollars you can live pretty well uh, even uh, in this kind of in this kind of a milieu that uh, these rich bankers live in uh, Richard fold from uh, Lehman Brothers he also had money I'm sure secreted aside so that he had not all his wealth at stake when his company went under Jimmy Kane probably the same story so so limited liability matters insider rating the rating companies were paid an enormous amount of money to uh, uh, provide rate rosy scenarios about what it was that they were rating they were not putting out reports about liar mortgages about fraudulent uh, securities being generated left right and center they were saying that uh, AIG was a triple-a company and that the CDOs that it was putting together the CMOs these collateralized uh, debt obligations collateralized mortgage mortgage obligations were being put together with securities that were fundamentally fraudulent because the initiation process entailed people lying about their income and about the uh, value of the homes that they were trying to get mortgages on about the value of the collateral and that really is in large part at the heart of this uh, financial crisis that we've experienced the directors were were uh, sitting pretty because they were uh, they weren't they didn't want to make waves because they were being compensated uh, in effect hired by the CEO and uh, given the opportunity to pay themselves because they set their own compensation and they then in turn would pay the CEO, determine the CEO's compensation. So you have these sweetheart deals going on between the directors and the CEOs. So the directors were uh, being bribed in effect not to give the CEOs any, any grief. Uh, corporate governance problems. In these large companies, the, uh, the people uh, running the companies are not necessarily major shareholders of the companies. And uh, so they're there to try and make a quick buck and potentially move on to another company. And that's why their bonus is so important to them. That's why their annual sales results are so important. Everything's uh, quick compensation, and then things may not turn off out next year, so I'll switch firms. Uh, we've got political bribes. There were huge amounts of money sent from Wall Street down to Washington prior to the uh, decision to fully repeal Glass-Steagall back in 1999. We have regulatory capture. Uh, we, ha we have people that are working in the government who are working on Wall Street and intend to go back to Wall Street. And those who have never wa worked on Wall Street see people making huge fortunes after they leave the government on Wall Street. And so they say to themselves, am I going to give the these companies that I hope to work for a hard time. So they're working in large part for their next boss, not for their current boss, which is the American public. We have moral hazard. We have uh, people making decisions that um, uh, uh, are are based on um, uh, you know moral hazard entails uh, affecting the probability of bad outcomes. And if you're not personally at risk, you take decisions that uh, can increase the probability of the downside. This fellow, uh, Joe Cassano, who is housed here in, in London, working for AIG and produced trillions uh, or so in 
in credit default swaps and other exotic securities, which um, entailed him and his group of con artists, and that's really what they were fundamentally, insuring what was not insurable. If I were to come to you and try and sell you insurance for a nuclear war, a full-scale nuclear war, you'd realize that that was bogus, that I was engaged in selling snake oil. That's, in effect, what he did. He and his troop uh, of, uh, and he was paid millions upon millions of dollars in the process to sell fraudulent securities, to insure things that he couldn't insure. And the premiums that he got, took in, he then uh, used to purchase um, assets whose value would decline if, indeed, the insurance was ever called. So he really doubled down the bets. We have non-disclosure, which is a critically important factor here. Uh, I think it may be the most important factor here. Nobody knew for sure what Bear Stearns held or owned, owed or owned, and nobody knew what Lehman owed or owned, and nobody knew what Goldman owed or owned, and nobody knew, knows today what the Fed precisely owes or owed, uh, owed or owns at this moment. So non-disclosure is a big issue. How do you value a company where you really don't know what they're doing, uh, what it is that their assets are and what their liabilities are? How do you value it? So when the value of Bear Stearns goes from $67 at the beginning of one week down to $2 at the end of the week, the information that has uh, arrived that will move the price that much, because we economists know that prices are supposed to only move, security price is supposed to move when there's new information. The information that arrived during that week is that there was actually no information, that nobody knew what the assets and liabilities of this company really were. So the only person that actually did know was Jimmy Kane. He was the CEO of Bear Stearns at the time of its collapse. And he had been reported uh, uh, in the news newspaper alleged to uh, have a, uh, uh, have a uh, fixation with playing bridge. I think that's pretty well documented. He spent a lot of time playing bridge. Indeed, he was playing bridge as the company was, was in the process of completely collapsing, and he was not accessible because he was in the, in the middle of a bridge tournament. Uh, he'd also spent a lot of time playing golf, and he's also alleged to spend a lot of time smoking dope. So this is the guy who was running a $750 billion balance sheet, and he was the one, quote, managing risk. And his background in risk management, in terms of his uh, educational background, was that he flunked out of college. He then proceeded to sell scrap metal. Then he proceeded to sell copying machines and then do some other odd uh, jobs. But basically, he was a very good bridge player. And he happened to, to interview with the head of Bear Stearns. He was also a good salesman. And the head of Bear Stearns was a very avid bridge player, too, named Ace Greenberg. So Ace fell in love with Jimmy's bridge game and hired Jimmy. And Jimmy, over time, more or less kicked out Ace out of his top position. And Jimmy became the, the top dog. And the firm did well over time. Uh, and, uh, and then, of course, it collapsed. Uh, 
because he didn't necessarily know what he was doing. Uh, and uh, he didn't let anybody else know what he was doing. <clears throat> and the different parts of these companies uh, didn't know what the other parts were doing. So that's the kind of situation we have. We have people at the top of these companies who are controlling our economic fate who have no business doing that. We don't want to put the well-being of our kids and our grandkids and ourselves in the hands of these people. Because even though most bankers are honest Jimmy Stewarts, the ones who end up at the top of these companies tend to be not Jimmy Stewarts. And uh, uh, they're, they've got a lot of things going on in their lives. They're self, you know, some of them are very charitable. At the same time, they're in large part egomaniacs. Uh, they are driven by t testosterone to a large extent and they want to beat other people on the marketplace and at some point when they're rich enough losing you know even a billion bucks is not the end of the world to them so we've got off balance sheet vehicles we've got corporations setting up uh, these financial companies setting up entities and they say that we don't have any liability to that entity all of a sudden that entity gets into trouble and now it's our problem that happened very much uh, akin to what went on with Enron. We have uh, government bailouts, and the prospect of being bailed out means you take more risk. That's where the interaction with moral hazard comes. We've got a failure to mark to market, which is something that uh, <clears throat> Mr. Madoff did in uh, spades. He failed to mark to market his assets. He's, he, in effect, was telling people he had $65 billion in securities, and when people actually finally got around to looking, uh, when the SEC decided to finally look, well, he had only about $1 billion in assets. So uh, that's a bit, bit of a, uh, a, mis a discrepancy. Let's put it that way. And then we have, uh, and Madoff, is, of course, was not alone. All the big banks and even the government uh, have been failing to mark things to market. So we have these fraudulent uh, uh, statements about uh, securities, uh, security values and, and uh, uh, profitability of, of the financial sector. And we also have fraud. And fraud uh, arose in a lot of dimensions in this uh, debacle. But I think it's fair to say that over the course of several years, the financial industry in the U.S. went about the business of systematically producing two to three trillion dollars worth of fundamentally fraudulent securities, which they then sold to people all over the world, including little villages in Norway that ended up going broke, including major banks in Iceland that ended up taking in deposits from Brits and ended up going under, and then the Brits lost their their money. So a little bit of fraud, well, this was not a little bit of fraud. This was a lot of bit of fraud, fraud, but it was really a little bit of fraud relative to the size of the asset market, but it was enough to, um, to bring down the system to a large extent, to make people realize that there was no there there, that we really didn't understand what assets and liabilities these companies actually uh, had. So what are people saying are the causes of this um, 
problem? Well, some people are claiming it's leverage, and I'm going to say the primary cause was not leverage. Proprietary trading, Paul Volcker is saying we should stop commercial banks from engaging in proprietary trading. I don't think that's uh, directly responsible for what happened. Securitization, bundling together securities that are legitimate cannot be a bad thing. It leads to diversified investments. It helps you diversify your investments. Securitization is not the root cause of this problem. Whether if the banks are large, well, you can have large banks that are operating soundly. So the size of the banks really can't be it. Lack of funeral plans, well, it's the funeral that's the problem. It's not the lack of the funeral plan. So trying to get banks right now, as uh, Paul Volcker is proposing and as the President's proposal, to set, set down really detailed funeral plans, exactly where they're going to dig their grave and how big it should be. Uh, all this is about having a funeral. I think what we should try and do is set up a plan not to have funerals. That seems to me to be the way to go, not to, to um, develop plans for the next catastrophe. Uh, derivatives. Derivatives per se are not the problem here. We had a financial crisis in the 30s that wasn't due to uh, a lot of these derivatives because they didn't exist. And there, there's a lot of parallels between what happened in the 30s and what, what's happening what happened here. So what I think was that the root cause of this uh, problem was, was just plain old fraud. And, uh, and all of these other things like leverage, like limited liability, like director sweetheart deals, like insider rating, all those factors contributed to making this fraud a big problem. And Maybe the best analogy for what happened here is what happened in 1982 in Chicago when a couple drugstores ended up selling seven bottles of Tylenol in total, and those seven bottles happened to be laced with cyanide, and a number of people died. And all of a sudden, from one minute to the next, these, this was before safety-sealed containers were available. And Johnson & Johnson had 30 million bottles of Tylenol distributed in stores throughout the world. And this was a big problem because suddenly nobody could trust that the Tylenol in those 30 million bottles was any good. Maybe it was all tainted with cyanide. Maybe all the other products on the shelf also had cyanide. So one thing Johnson Johnson could have done is to tell everybody, don't worry, um, it's okay. We're going to reimburse anybody who, who bought the cyanide. Uh, we'll give you a free, fresh bottle of cyanide, and uh, or I mean, a Tylenol. <laughs> and uh, and furthermore, we're going to pay you to go buy Tylenol, and we're going to come up with more and more money to pay you more and more to go into that store and buy the Tylenol. And how many takers would there have been? Well, not too many, and until they would maybe get the price way up there in terms of how much they would have to pay people to go to get the Tylenol. And that's kind of what Uncle Sam has been doing here. He hasn't gone into the drugstores and said, well, these bottles have Tylenol. I'm going to label them as Tylenol, uh, as cyanide. These, these bottles of Tylenol actually have cyanide, and I'm going to label them that way. I'm going to disclose exactly what they are so that if somebody needs to get rat poison, they can come to the store and buy those bottles and use it to 
kill some rats. But they're not going to use it to um, get, take away pain. That's not what the government's been doing. Instead, the government, in some sense, has been paying people to go back in the store and um, uh, hope that they're not going to buy cyanide when they're trying to buy Tylenol. Now, Johnson & Johnson took a different perspective on this. They decided to recall all 30 million bottles at a cost of like $100 million, and they repackaged all these bottles in safety-sealed containers, and then they put them back on the shelves, and they got back into business, and a year later, people had forgotten about this problem. And this is why we have safety-sealed containers throughout the drugstores. It wasn't just the Tylenol that people were worried about all of a sudden. It was they were worried about every every product, and uh, now we have every product on the shelves having these safety seals. So we need to have somebody checking the products, and it can't be um, it can't be Wall Street because Wall Street doesn't do a great job checking the products, as far as we can tell. So let me tell you about why this is so serious and why we need the new solution to the financial uh, problems we're facing. Uh, we have in the U.S. no real deposit insurance. Most people may find that a surprising statement. They might say, well, you, you've had in the U.S. since 1933 the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. What do you mean you don't have real deposit insurance? I mean we have no real deposit insurance. We have uh, a system that, that, that ensures your nominal deposits. It will pay you back your money for sure if the bank doesn't pay it back. But it won't pay you back your real money, your real balances, your purchasing power. So let me make this a little bit more concrete. We are sitting here today with the FDIC having $6 trillion in liabilities. They disclose only $4 trillion on their website because they say the other $2 trillion are temporary liabilities, but they're right now at this moment six trillion. And were there to be a run on the bank uh, tomorrow morning in the U.S. and all the banks, what would happen? Well, the, guy, the president would go on TV and say, don't worry, your money's safe. There's um, deposit insurance. You're going to be able to get your money back. And then somebody might say, well, do you actually have any reserves? Uh, then they'll check and they'll say, well, we don't actually have any reserves. The Federal Reserve doesn't have, I mean, the FDIC doesn't have any reserves. Uh, well, we actually have $18 billion of reserves, and that's not a lot of reserves relative to $6 trillion. So we don't actually have any reserves right now, but don't worry, you're going to get your money back. And then people might put two and two together, especially if they're from Argentina. If these people are from Argentina, and it were down in Argentina in 2002, and remember what happened there, they will put two and two together, and they'll say, well, gee, how's the government going to come up with $6 trillion if everybody runs in the bank? They're going to print six trillion dollars. And that's going to lead to inflation. Indeed, that's going to lead to hyperinflation. That means if I don't get my money out right away and buy something real, like a microphone or a computer, uh, I'm going to be left at the end of the day with my dollars for sure, but the, but the price level will have skyrocketed, so I'll be left with, with nothing in real terms, in terms of purchasing power. So. We don't provide real deposit insurance, which makes our banking system, just the old-fashioned retail banking system where you, you know, demand deposits, uh, 
highly vulnerable to bank runs in a context where the government has made commitments that go far beyond its ability to repay without printing uh, huge amounts of money and then causing hyperinflation. So that's just one aspect of this. Uh, we also face the prospect of life insurance runs. What if everybody were to run tomorrow to their life insurance company and say, everybody with a cash, uh, a cash surrender life, life insurance policy, which gives them the right to hand in their policy and take back cash, and there are $3 trillion worth of these cash surrender policies outstanding. These are, in effect, like bank accounts, demand deposit accounts that the life insurance industry has sold to the public. The life insurance is saying, if you want your money back you're on this, this policy, you have paid premiums over the year. Part of that premiums, uh, part of the premiums were to develop a savings account in our life insurance company, and we've invested that money on your behalf so we can pay you a good return on these cash uh, whole life policies that you purchase. But you have the cash surrender value, and at any time you can come in and cash in your policy. So the life insurance companies have been acting just like regular old banks in this context. There is about $3 trillion in cash surrender policies outstanding. So we could have a run on the life insurance companies tomorrow morning where people would ask for their $3 trillion. And the life insurance companies have how much in reserves? Well, they have about a trillion in reserves, but they have about $19 trillion in life insurance policies outstanding, so they have to have some money in reserve to cover the possibility that people might die. So they really don't have reserves to cover this kind of a run, certainly not anything liquid that they could pay it off. So the next line of uh, defense would be the estate insurance guarantee funds, which have $8 billion in reserves. That's not a whole lot of money relative to $3 trillion. So what would have to happen is that the uh, government, which is Uncle Sam, would have to come and print $3 trillion, and that itself would be enough to generate hyperinflation and uh, lead people to uh, realize that they should indeed go to their insurance company very, very quickly and cash in their policy. So we have, you can see already, the, the potential here for multiple equilibria multiple bank runs, just like we saw in the movie. It's the same story. We have uh, money market accounts, which uh, were run on in this last crisis. And we have uh, the government, in effect, guaranteeing, because it did uh, step in and guarantee that these uh, funds would not break the buck. Well, if the government is uh, guaranteeing that, but everybody else is running to get the money out of the money market accounts, the government's going to have to print something like $3 trillion to cover all these withdrawals from the money market accounts. Again, you have the prospect of inflation, hyperinflation. Again, you realize that unless you take your money out, you're going to be left with nothing in real terms. So we have these problems right now. We have, and these are unthinkable problems. These are crazy, radical, uh, wacky ideas, <coughs> propositions, right? Well, let's be clear. We've just gone through thing, a, a period where the impossible has happened. So we cannot 
uh, afford not to think about the impossible anymore. We have to make sure that our system is safe from the impossible because the impossible has happened and, and can easily happen again. The U.S. bond market could collapse tomorrow. The Chinese and the Americans seem to be getting into it. Tomorrow, I think, uh, or so, uh, the Dalai Lama is going to be visiting the White House. Well, maybe the Chinese reaction will be to dump half a trillion dollars worth of U.S. securities. Uh, they hold, they're the biggest holder of Fannie and Freddie Mac, Freddie Mac bonds. So they could dump those bonds and other treasuries that they hold. They have about $750 billion in U.S. securities, government securities of different types, and about a trillion in total in U.S. denominated, dollar-denominated securities. So they could dump all those on the market. Interest rates would, would jump sky high. The dollar would devalue. Prices would start going up because of the price of imports. The Fed would start printing money to try and rescue things. People start realizing uh, we've got a real problem. And then what they might do is start heading to the bank to get their money out. And then they might start heading to the insurance company to get their cash surrender value money out. And then they might start heading to their money market account to get their cash, that, that money out. So if you put all this together uh, and you put the other things that the government has guaranteed that people would start asking for their money uh, back in this context, uh, it comes to about $24 trillion that Uncle Sam would have to print. That's more than two, well, that's more than two times our national income. So the government can print lots of money, but it can't actually make any goods and services. So we should not be under any illusion that the government can actually fulfill these promises. What the government of the U.S. has been engaged in is AIG behavior. The government has become AIG. It's made promises that it cannot keep. It sold insurance against a nuclear war, an economic nuclear war, and it can never fulfill those promises. And we need to get out from under that situation, and limited purpose banking would do that. Already, the federal government has essentially triple the base money supply, and there's a great cause of concern uh, in the U.S. and around the world about whether that's going to lead to inflation. The Federal Reserve assures us that they're not going to have a problem in maintaining the price level, keeping inflation under control. They've got ways, they say, of getting that money that they've printed out there and bringing it back inside. But the Treasury has quite different ideas about what way things are going to wind up. The Fed says we're not going to have to print any more money, having printed over a trillion in fresh dollars through this crisis to support different uh, parts of the economy. And the, and the Fed says, well, that's it. That's all we're going to need to do. Meanwhile, the Treasury is running 13% of GDP deficits. That's higher than the deficit in Greece right now. If you look at the fiscal picture in the U.S., the long-term fiscal picture, the explicit debt and the implicit debt to pay off all these entitlement programs that we have uh, in place, with 78 mil million baby boomers on the verge of retiring and pro projected to receive, when they're fully retired, $50,000 per person in today's dollars, that's more than per capita GDP, from Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, from those three programs, on average, they're going to get 50,000 bucks. 50, bucks. We're talking about a big problem here. 
we're talking about deficits as far as the eye can see, and we're talking about the government at some point facing very high interest rates, and at some point saying, we can't borrow at these rates because the more we borrow, the higher the interest rates. You, the Fed, have got to print some money to pay the bills that are immediately due. That's what happens in a third world country when things get out of hand on the fiscal side. Things are very much out of hand on the fiscal side in the U.S. Things are in worse shape on the fiscal side in the U.S. today than they are in Greece. I'm quite sure that's the case. Now, what are we doing about what, what, what can we do about this? We can leave things the way they are, and you want to call that the safe solution. That's not the safe solution. That's the radical path. The safe solution is to fix fundamentally the tax system, the retirement system, the health care system. And at the end of this book, uh, there's an afterword which talks about three simple plans to do that. But we also have to immediately fix the financial system. And limited purpose banking does that in a very simple manner. And here's the way it works. So the idea is this. You take a look at the financial landscape today, and you notice that we, we did have an earthquake. And you look at what financial companies are still standing and which ones collapsed. And not all of the commercial banks and investment banks collapsed, but a large chunk of them did. That segment of the industry which really didn't collapse was the mutual fund industry. It was built out of concrete, and it didn't collapse. And let me be clear, I'm not on the take from the, from the mutual fund industry. I don't have any consulting jobs in the mutual fund industry. I don't have any conflicts of interest with them. Uh, I don't agree with everything they're doing, with all the fees they're charging and hiding in a lot of cases. Uh, but the mutual fund structure is what survived this uh, financial turmoil. So what I'm proposing in limited purpose banking is to take all financial companies that have limited liability, whether they're limited liability uh, corporations or, or partnerships or just Schedule S corporations or Schedule C corporations, any financial intermediary that has limited liability would, from one day to the next, be told, folks, you can no longer borrow to invest in risky assets. You can no longer take in deposits to invest in risky assets. You can't sell bonds to invest in risky assets. The only thing you can do is to sell mutual funds you're going to be transformed into a mutual fund company. And your mutual funds are going to specialize in different financial products. Some of your mutual funds will uh, invest in mortgages. Some will invest in small, uh, small company uh, uh, commercial paper. Some will invest in large company commercial paper. In the US, mutual funds, which I think you folks call unit trusts, are not a small deal. They represent one-third of the financial system. One-third of the total assets are being held in mutual funds. These mutual funds have third-party custody. That's part of the 1940 Investment Company Act. So no Mr. Madoff could take an investor in a mutual fund's money and go steal it, because he'd have to buy securities and he'd have a third-party custody. Mr. Madoff didn't have a third-party custody because he wasn't a mutual fund. He was a hedge fund. And that's partly why the SEC didn't investigate him, because he was set up as a hedge fund. 
And they said, oh, we don't touch hedge funds. We don't talk, we don't look at hedge funds unless there's a really good reason. And Mr. Madoff has told us he's going to be the, the next head of the SEC, so we don't want to investigate him. So that's uh, how he got out from under being investigated. And so nobody asked him the simple question, show me the assets. That, that never happened. With mutual fund companies, there's a third party custodian who is looking at the assets every day, make sure they're there. So there's no barring to investor risk by the mutual fund company itself. Think about Fidelity Investments. They're the company. They're not borrowing to invest. What they're doing is running mutual funds. And mutual funds are themselves little banks with 100% capital requirements because the money that's coming in is coming in in the form of equity. So the mutual funds are selling shares to their fund, to their investors. Those shares are like share, shares of stock to the mutual fund. And then the money is being invested in different securities. In the US today, we have about 8,000 different mutual funds, not mutual fund companies, but mutual funds. And they are investing in all kinds of securities, junk bonds, uh, treasury inflation protected securities, uh, treasury bills, treasury long-term corporate bonds, uh, index funds, foreign stock index funds, domestic stock index funds, you name it. There are 8,000 different uh, types of mutual funds out there. Now, in addition to these mutual funds, there'd be two new tip, uh, types of mutual funds that would be developed under limited purpose banking. One would be a cash mutual funds, cash mutual fund. And the way this would work is the following. Uh, if, for example, Tim was running a cash mutual fund, uh, he's working for Citigroup, and he's set up a, he's the, the uh, mutual fund manager for Citigroup's cash mutual fund. So I'm a potential shareholder. Uh, I want to put my money in cash. And so what I do is I take my money give it to Tim. Tim takes a little bit as a fee uh, for his services. And what does he do? Well, he holds it in cash. Think of it as uh, Tim taking it and handing it to his custodian who's got this big bathtub. And in the bathtub, this big pool, uh, all this cash is being held safely. And Scrooge McDuck is swimming in that pool, having a great time. Uh, you don't know about Scrooge McDuck or Jimmy Stewart, you're not well educated. <laughs> so come to Boston University, we'll teach you these things. Uh, no, go, go online, you'll find out uh, about Scrooge McDuck. So he's Donald Duck's uh, uh, uncle, and uh, he was uh, very uh, into money, this guy. So he would, uh, in the cartoons, he would uh, be swimming in the swimming pool full of money. That would be the way he would swim. A great time doing it. So cash mutual funds would be the counterpart of checking accounts in this limited purpose banking system. We need to be able to get our, uh, to use cash to, in order to make payments for, you know, subway tolls or whatever. So what we would do is we'd have a, a an ATM card or debit card, and we could go to a uh, ATM machine and withdraw cash. And those mutual funds would be the only ones that are back to the buck because there'd actually be a buck there for, for every buck that's deposited except for the fee that's being charged. All the other mutual funds would not be back to the buck. 
they would all have one-page prospectuses, which would say at the very top, this mutual fund is risky. It is not back to the buck by anybody. Okay. So everybody would know that if you want to invest money in a, a money market fund, whether it's run by the reserve fund, the reserve primary fund, which went, which did break the buck, and the U.S. government came in and bailed them out, that uh, any investment in any mutual fund except for cash mutual funds could break the buck. So anyway, we would have a checking account uh, system, a debit card system. It would just be called cash mutual funds. We can run that through, we can run our checking accounts through mutual fund, the mutual fund system. We can run credit through the mutual fund system because if I invest in a, um, uh, in a fund that Alistair is uh, running, which is buying mortgages in Detroit, well, I'm putting in the money on an equity basis and he's buying these mortgages. And I'm now extending credit to the person on the other side of that mortgage. And so we're running credit through the mutual funds. Alistair might run uh, a, uh, a special kind of a mutual fund, which is called a CMO, Credit Collateralized Mortgage Obligation, where he takes in money from investors like me, gives us back our shares. But when we put our money in, we can choose uh, how we want to get paid off. So some of us can get paid off a lesser amount, but with more prob higher probability, and others of us who invest can uh, get paid off a higher amount, but with a smaller probability. That's a CDO or CMO. That can, that's, that's what a CDO or CMO is. It's really a mutual fund where the different participants, the equity participants, the shareholders, are leveraging against each other, one against each other. They're taking risk compared to one, one compared to the other. So we can have leverage within limited purpose banking just by having mutual funds that let people leverage the different shareholders uh, and give them different positions within the mutual fund in terms of their payoff. Um, now, what about buying stocks? Well, we can have stock mutual funds, so the public can buy stocks through the mutual funds. What about insurance? Well, an insurance company is a financial intermediary that's incorporated, and insurance companies would be forced to operate as mutual funds. How can you run an insurance company through a mutual fund? Well, let me pause to say how risky we are running our insurance companies right now, and then tell you how, we, how you would run insurance through mutual funds and, and take away this risk. Let us suppose that today we didn't have any runs on the banks or the insurance company for people to get their cash surrender values out, but we had something else happen, namely we have swine flu break out in a slightly different variant than uh, has now so far occurred. And suppose that we had 5% of the population drop dead. And let's just suppose that that 5% of the population was concentrated among middle-aged males and females who were the primary holders of life insurance policies. The life insurance companies are not counting on 5% of the people dying. They're counting on a much smaller fraction dying. In the U.S., the mortality rate is uh, eight-tenths of one percent. That's what they're kind of counting on. So if five percent of the U.S. share of life insurance policyholders were to drop dead, 
the life insurance companies in the U.S. would go broke because what they're doing is insuring the uninsurable. And what would happen then is we'd probably have a run on the cash surrender values of these uh, policies. We'd have the government having to print trillions of dollars, having then a run on the checking accounts, having a run on the money market accounts. We'd have all the uh, catastrophic outcomes that I've been describing to you occur. Not because there was a problem there, but with, there was a problem with swine flu. Because the ins life insurance companies have insured systematically un the uninsurable. They've said, we're going to pay you your life insurance uh, amounts, your policy amounts, your the face value of your life insurance policy, under all circumstances. They might have in some of the policies some proviso against uh, war and uh, you know, acts of nature, but I don't know whether this would qualify as an act of nature. In any case, the public would say, look, you promised to pay me off my life insurance. You didn't tell me uh, you know, the, the decedents, or the, the heirs, sorry, the decedents would be already dead, but the heirs would say, look, my husband just dropped, dropped dead, had a $100,000 policy, pay me. And um, the government would have to bail them out. So we want to have a system where no insurance company no financial company tries to insure the uninsurable. And the way this would work under limited purpose banking is that people would, um, uh, life insurance companies would, who would specialize in insurance mutual funds would set up a life insurance uh, mutual fund that would work like this. Alistair is running this fund. He's, he puts a, up an advertisement that uh, as of January 1st, 2010, he's going to take in money from people who are males, 50 to 55 years old, who have passed this particular health test. So we know they're not all going to drop dead immediately. And uh, six and that money is going to be invested in treasury securities, guilds, I guess you call them here, six-month guilds. And then at the end of that time, whoever has died is going to get the pot of money the money that was invested in these guilds is going to be there. The custodian is going to make sure it's there. The pot's safe. Whoever has died is going to collect the pot in proportion to how much they put into the pot. The people who don't die aren't going to collect the pot. Of course, if you're dead, you really can't collect the pot. So when I say that the, that the decedents collect the pot, I really mean that their survivors collect the pot. Now, if more people die, then there's going to be the same size pot, but more people, more survivors are going to be coming and trying to claim the pot. So what happens then? Well, what, the way this would work is that, that less would be paid out per decedent because the pot is fixed. The pot is a natural firewall. It's not that the public has to bail out the survivors. The survivors understand that the pot is fixed and that there is no insurance of aggregate mortality. And if more people die than was expected over the next six months, there'll be less paid out per decedent. We would have all kinds of insurance mutual funds that would operate like this. We would have annuity insurance, longevity insurance mutual funds, which were originally called tontines. They date back to about 1657. The first 
meeting place of the New York Stock Exchange was the Tontine Coffee House on Wall Street. So Tontines are an old structure and they can be developed safely and used in this context. So we don't want anyone, we don't want anyone insuring the uninsurable in this new system, but we also want to uh, allow for the possibility that, uh, that uh, people want to trade aggregate risk. You can't insure against swine flu in the aggregate. You can't prevent it. You have no way to prevent it. But uh, what you can do is let, let those people that are more vulnerable to mortality being high share risk with those who are less vulnerable to mortality being high. So another mutual fund that uh, uh, Alistair could set up would be a mortality mutual fund where on January 1st, this is a closed-end fund as well, January 1st, 2010, he takes in money, and it's a bet on whether the mortality rate in Great Britain will exceed 2%, which is a high number. And the money is put into treasuries. A year later, we see whether or not the mortality rate exceeds 2%. People would put their money in on one of two bases. One would be, I could put my money in uh, saying that uh, I'm going to bet on mortality being below 2%. Someone else will bet that it'll be above. The pot's there. At the end of the year, we see who wins. And whoever wins gets the pot less the fee in proportion to how much they put in. Now, young people who are worried about the mortality rate being high because they're going to get less of a payout on their life insurance policies if they do die, they're going to invest on the basis of the mortality rate being high. Old people will want to take the other position because if mortality is low, their annuity <coughs> tontines, insurance mutual funds, are going to do poorly, and so they want to hedge against that outcome. So you will have people taking the opposite sides of these bets. This kind of a bet is the kind of bet you see when you go to the racetrack. This is like a paramutual bet at the racetrack. You can think about mortality being low as horse A, mortality being high as horse, horse B. You're betting on horse A versus horse B. And paramutual betting at the racetrack was developed in about 1847 in Paris by an Italian um, who was subsequently jailed for a while, but the French ultimately agreed that this is the way to run races, and, it's being, and this method of running races arises throughout the world. So when you go to the racetrack, you're engaging in, you're buying a share of a mutual fund for the course of that race. And you have the money being custodied behind, the, behind this um, uh, window at the, when the race begins. And that's the pot, less the fee, and whoever wins takes the pot. Now, if you really study betting at the horse track, you'll notice that there are different kinds of mutual funds that are being uh, bets that you can place. There's trifectas and other types of bets. And that allows you to engage in more uh, varied types of uh, risk sharing. But in all cases, the pot's right there. That's it. There's no claim on the taxpayer. There's no liability that goes beyond this pot. The pot is the firewall. So we have, under limited purpose banking, natural firewalls. That's what our system doesn't have. What we now have is a system where there's no firewalls, where the contagion can, can spread 
from one bank to the next bank to the entire system, and then to the government. So that's the advantage of, um, of uh, insurance mutual funds. Now, the key other element, and then I'm going to stop and take questions, in this proposal is to have a single federal regulator that takes away the possibility of fraud. Not entirely, but 99%. And right now in the US, we have about 115 regulatory bodies. The president wants to add about four or five more. These 120 regulatory, 15, 115 regulatory bodies all were asleep at the wheel. They all missed this uh, production of two to three trillion dollars in fraudulent securities. And probably it was as simple as this. They had nobody sitting right next to Joe Cassano who really could understand what he was doing here in central London with his 50 or other and so 50 buddies. Uh, they had nobody uh, watching over um, Anthony Mazzillo and all his troops in countrywide financial as they were producing liar mortgages. They had nobody who was really focusing at the very basic level on what these securities actually are. They had, they had nobody involved in disclosing the nature of these securities. So what would happen here with this uh, single regulatory authority that I'm talking about going to? I'm talking about going from 120 regulatory agencies, state and federal, to just one. And I'm going to call it the Federal Financial Authority. And I'm going to have this Federal Financial Authority do very little but some things that are very critical. So they'll do much less than the current regulators are supposed to do, but what they will do is they are going to verify the income statements and other statements that are being made by uh, those folks who are trying to sell securities to, whether they be individuals or companies who are trying to sell the securities to the mutual funds, they would verify those statements. So for example, somebody might come into uh, uh, <coughs> Barclays Bank and uh, apply for a mortgage. Barclays would do the paperwork. They would send the paperwork to the Federal Financial Authority. The Federal Financial Authority would look at the <coughs> income statement and compare it with the federal tax return data that, the federal, that they would have access to and see whether there was any lying about what this person's past income was or what this company's past income was if it's a commercial uh, loan that's being applied for. And so, and the federal financial authority would also have independent appraisers go out and appraise the collateral that's being provided in the context of this loan application. So I go into Barclays, I apply for this loan, I say I'm going to buy this house, it's located here, and here's my past income. And it's worth a million bucks, and it's actually only worth 50,000 bucks. And I say my income has been a million dollars a year and I've actually been unemployed. Well that's going to be now sent to the Federal Financial Authority and they're going to say, guess what, this guy's real income is zero, and his house is, house is only worth 50,000 bucks. But, and now we're also going to send this to a set of independent rating companies who are not conflicted, who we've hired to rate this security. 
and they're going to rate it as highly risky, but they're not going to ban the security. They're going to say, look, we're not, our job is not to ban anything. Our job is to provide information, to provide disclosure. And they're going to now send this processed security back to Barclays, and Barclays' job will then be to put it up for auction to all the mutual funds who are buying mortgage mortgages. And then that mortgage will be, get purchased. It'll get purchased probably at a very low price, which means that the mortgagee, the borrower, will end up with a very high interest rate, in effect. So this is the way this would work, with one other very important feature, which is that as soon as the Federal Financial Authority processes this uh, application, they would disclose everything about it on the web, so that when the companies go about bidding for this mortgage, the mutual fund companies, they will know what it is that they're buying. And then the public will be able to, once the mutual fund has bought this mortgage, they'll be able to go and inspect online and see, okay, this company who's, who I've invested with, uh, this mutual fund that I invested with, I bought their mortgage mutual fund, and they're holding these mortgages in this neighborhood of Detroit with these kinds of income, uh, uh, with, with uh, mortgagees who have this kind of income background, I'll know exactly what it is I'm buying. Can you imagine that, that we'd have a financial marketplace in which people actually understood the financial products that they're buying? That would be really something quite unusual, quite remarkable. That's what we really fundamentally need. We need disclosure, we need transparency, we need something very simple that will work and that's honest because we're not going to restore economic growth and uh, high employment until we get back to, to trust. Let me see if there's any other slides here that I want to... Well, this is about how to implement limited purpose banking. I'm going to stop because um, the implementation, I can just say in two seconds, uh, uh, well, the implementation is you basically just tell companies you're going to run mutual funds, you have to stop this activity, you take your investment banking, you make that a consulting business, you take your trading business, and you can connect buyers and sellers of securities, but you cannot uh, have any net exposure in that operation. And uh, you take your checking accounts and convert them into cash mutual funds. And over time, you wind down your assets and your remaining liabilities. You pay that the cash flow from those operations as dividends, and your shareholders then are going to take that money and cycle it back into buying mutual funds. So you zombie the old practice and you gazelle the new practice of uh, marketing mutual funds. The last thing I want to say, and then I really will take questions, is that this proposal is starting to garner some support, or at least support for its consideration. I wouldn't say support for that people have necessarily fully signed on to this proposal. But we have, starting with Mervyn King, uh, some real interest in considering this proposal. We have six Nobel laureates, five of whom uh, have endorsed the book. Uh, Akerlof, Lucas, Prescott, Phelps, and Fogel, and Bill Sharp has been proposing things that are very similar. I'm not the only person who's come up with ideas like this. There's lots of people in the U.S. and the U.K., in government, outside of government, who are thinking in, along this, these lines. So, uh, Economists, when they put their mind to uh, an economic problem, they tend to come up with the same answer because it's really a constrained maximization problem. And uh, 
former Secretary of Treasury George Shultz likes this proposal. Robert Reich is the former Secretary of Labor, a big Democrat. Shultz was a Republican under uh, Nixon. Uh, former Senator Bill Bradley, a Democrat, Michael Boskin, and Mary Wiedenbaum, former heads of the CEA, Ken Rogoff and Simon Johnson, two uh, former chief economists of the IMF. And the list goes on. There's uh, people like Niall Ferguson, uh, Steve Ross, the father of arbitrage pricing theory. There's some very prominent economists and policymakers who are taking this proposal seriously. And so I encourage um, the Financial Times and other, <laughs> uh, other uh, media to, uh, to, to help uh, make it clear that this is not a radical, unrealistic, never going to happen idea. This is going to happen because this is the only safe way to proceed. If it doesn't happen, we're in real trouble. Let me stop there and uh, see what you think. Great. So uh, let's have some questions, and uh, I'll point you out. Uh, can you please? Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Sorry. Thank you very much indeed. One thing that puzzles me is, um, presumably, what we're doing without the fractional reserve banking system under the new system, what happens to the multiplier, and therefore, the, ultimately, the level of GDP and e economic activity? That's one question. Secondly, with very narrowly defined mutual funds, don't you, don't you increase the level of um, the, the, the lack of diversification um, increase, will increase the level of risk within each particular asset. Okay. Uh, with respect to the M1 money multiplier, that would end up being one because yeah. uh, M1 would just be cash, and it's either cash in people's pockets or cash in the in the cash mutual funds. So there would be no lending out this cash that's deposited in the cash mutual funds; would be just sitting there. And so the central banks would have complete control of the money supply. Now, this is something that monetarists have been pushing for for decades. Going back to, uh, you know, Milton Friedman was a big advocate of having the government have complete control of the money supply. So he was advocating narrow banking. And narrow banking, which is cash mutual funds, is just one small part of this, of this limited purpose banking proposal. But that's what he was pushing for, narrow banking. And we have... Uh, Back in the 30s, Irving Fisher and Frank Knight and Henry Simons also pushed very hard for narrow banking. They, they came up with something called the Chicago Plan, and they thought that was going to be the cure for the financial uh, disease that was there. So your other question about having a multiplier of one is whether that's problematic for the economy. Well, if you have complete control of the money supply, then if you want to make it bigger because you think that's going to help the economy, you have complete control over it, and you don't have to worry about where it's going. What Friedman and Schwartz said, Anna Schwartz and, and Milton Friedman said in their great book about the Great Depression, uh, was that because the Fed didn't have complete control of the money supply, the money multiplier crashed, and M1 actually declined. The government increased base, the Fed increased base, but it didn't increase by enough to offset the decline in the money multiplier. And therefore, there was a contraction event of M1, and that's why we had the Great Depression. 
I don't believe that's the reason we had the Great Depression, but maybe it was a contributing factor. And what I'm saying is under limited purpose banking, the government would have complete control of, the, of M1, and they wouldn't have to worry about where it was going to be. They could set it themselves. In this uh, current financial fiasco, the money multiplier in the U.S. has gone from 1.6 down to right now about 0.8. So it's fallen in half. The Fed has had to print so much money in order to uh, try and uh, offset that decline in M1. And uh, they've succeeded. But uh, So your other question was about diversification. Each of the mutual funds can themselves be highly diversified across types of securities, and then you can buy different types of mutual funds to, to diversify yourself across different asset classes. So I can buy a mutual fund that's investing in a stock index of all, in all, the, in all the, uh, the British stocks, for example, in proportion to their market shares of, the, uh, of capitalization. Or I can buy the S&P 500 index. So, as I said, again, there's 8,000 of these mutual funds out there already. So if I want to go and fully diversify my portfolio, I can just put a little bit in these different types of mutual funds and achieve whatever kind of risk allocation I'd like. And I can ask my financial advisor for help doing that. I don't need to give my money to a bank who then gambles with it. And then I end up, maybe I get my money back, even if we don't have this catastrophic tail risk that I talked about happening. But if the bank goes under and has to be bailed out, I end up getting it in the neck through higher taxes, or losing my job, or losing the value of my assets, or my kid can't get a job. So we're experiencing this risk. This idea that our current system is insulating us from risk is completely uh, off base. The current system is manufacturing risk. We've got man-made risk. We need to get the man-made risk out of the system so we can have just the economic risk, which is bad enough. You had a question in the back. Yes. Financial Services Authority. Uh, on the cash mutual, the cash mutual fund. If it is literally cash, does ret is th is there not a negative return on the fund? Yeah. Uh, secondly, uh, would you allow sweeps? Uh, from the cash, uh, out of the cash mutual fund into uh, other types of funds? And what type of dynamic does that give rise to? Well, cash mutual funds would, uh, every dollar put in would yield a dollar less the fee. So, it, so a, negative a negative nominal return, and then in real terms, because of inflation, it would be even more negative. But people do hold cash, and they want to have cash, and to the extent they wanted to have cash, this would be a safe way to have. They wouldn't have it all in their, under their pillow and worry about it being stolen. So there would be a demand for cash mutual funds. The, uh, now, in terms of sweeps, uh, maybe I'm not clear exactly what you mean. Could, could I take my cash and move it into a different account? I could do that, yes. I could do that over the web because there's always a dollar less the fee in my account for every dollar I put in. And so I have to have access to that net amount. He wants to uh, respond and be able to move it into a different mutual fund. Yes. Are credits to and debits from the cash mutual fund what constitutes the payments in, in the system? You know, we have effectively payments into and out of demand deposit accounts are what operates the payment system. Right. And the you know, is it account cash 
your balances in a cash mutual fund, is, is that going to be what is the substitute for demand yes. deposits? Yeah, that, that's the substitute, and we'd use that for the payment system. You could write checks against your cash mutual fund. Right. right. Okay. And what, what about the operational risk? Uh, well, maybe you want to... I, I, you know, you've talked about you don't need deposit insurance, you don't need uh, insurance on this, right. uh, and people should be satisfied with a negative return on, on what amounts to demand deposits. Uh, they should be uh, run the risk of operation uh, of that the operator of the mutual fund will co will collapse for operational reasons. That there would be no backup from the from oh, the government Hank, we just with respect to that. Can we do this one at a time. The right now, my checking account, I get a zero interest on my checking account uh, uh, at my local bank. But it's not negative. Well, it's negative. Okay. Well, they, it is negative because they charge me fees, so it is negative. Uh, it may not be as negative as it would be uh, under uh, a pure cash mutual fund. Uh, and uh, the money is going to be custodied by a third party. The government would be supervising that custody relationship. So the, the mutual fund itself could not abscond with the cash. That was kind of part of your question, I think, right? Systems, you mean there's like a, a nuclear attack on them or no, they're, they're, what? simple computer failures? It's computer failure. Right where it's getting destroyed. Well, the, they, since they would be running the payment system, they'd have to have the same kind of backup systems we now have with demand deposits. And the banks can very quickly move their cash, their, their checking accounts into cash mutual funds, take their excess reserves, back them dollar for dollar, and uh, use these uh, systems that they've developed. To uh, have backup uh, computer computer uh, disks in, in uh, you know who knows where they have them secreted across the country or across the world as backups. But would, would you allow them to you allow them to uh, have a unit a dollar unit of account with, with, or with you know, this whole aspect of breaking the box? They, they would not be they would not you know apart from the fee. Let's leave the fee out for a moment. Uh, they would not break the buck. They'd be the only mutual fund that doesn't break the buck. But are you allowing them to say that they would maintain the buck? Yeah, because they they have a dollar for every dollar that they owe. No, they have a, they have a wasting asset because of the fee. They have not, they have ninety nine point <coughs> cents. Well, okay, so I would I'd say they it's not going to break the buck except for the fee. That's what they would have to say. They have to honestly report what they're doing. But it would, certainly would not break the buck less the fee. Question right here. Kevin. During the crisis, they ended up bailing. They ended up guaranteeing the deposits anyway, even for their banks and for their non-banks. And so, during a political crisis, it's very hard, even if you have a formal system of like you have here, actually to get away from government guarantees. As we saw with General Motors, I guess is another example. You know, it's not a bank, and in theory, you had this corporate um, firewall. It didn't in practice didn't, didn't actually serve that purpose. And one reason for that, I think, at least in the case of New Zealand and other places, is that um, it's. The government bailout is a form of social insurance. So if taxation is is progressive, right, and then you then the cost of the financial crisis is spread 
throughout the population um, in this progressive way, rather being concentrated on the people who actually had the bank failure themselves, which under your system, if your mutual fund goes bust, then you have all the loss yourself, and there's no loss for anybody else. Okay? And so if you think of a financial crisis as being a more exogenous event, then there's a strong argument for this kind of you know, mutual insurance through via taxation to cover the cost. Okay? And so then the key part of your system that has to be that you will minimize the that failures aren't exogenous and that your system is going to minimize the cost, the cost <coughs> or potential for a failure happening. But it seems to me that most of that potential benefit comes from your financial guarantee company rather than through the mutual fund company. So maybe that's the most important part of your proposal. The federal financial regulator. The federal authority. financial regulator, yeah, rather right. than through the actual mutual fund structure. And you can do that without having the mutual fund structure that you're talking well, about. I don't so think what you do you think is most important? I think it's important to have both things. I think you need to have transparency. And I think once you have complexity, you could say that um, we're going to have, we had 120 regulators who are supposed to be telling us what these banks were up to. And, uh, and you could think about the banks as being one big mutual fund. At least the equity investors were, in effect, investing in the bank. But they didn't really know what it was that they were investing in. There was no transparency. So I think small is beautiful. Less is more in this context. We need s Each of these mutual funds is itself like a little bank where people know exactly what they're investing in. They're only allowed to invest in what, they char what they're chartered to invest in. And you can drill down on the web. So I think it's a combination of both things. that, um, And the economies of scale that the financial companies might want to be able to exploit will still be there. We're not taking a city group and breaking it up into 50 million little companies. We're saying just run 50, you know, lots of mutual funds, but you can stay as city group and you can be a big mutual fund company. So. Uh, I, getting back to your first point, there will be macroeconomic shocks. Uh, things will happen. We'll have, uh, maybe we'll have global warming raise the, the sea level and there'll be problems. But we won't have uh, fraud. We won't have, we'll have a system that we can trust, a financial system that will not involve systematically uh, people on Wall Street uh, borrowing short and lending long and privatizing the gain and socializing the risk. That whole con job is going to be taken out of the system. And if, if we do have global warming that causes some kind of major problem for certain segments of the economy, and if the government can certainly come in and provide transfer payments or tax, you know, tax relief or whatever, it can also go and intervene in the mutual funds and buy shares of particular mutual funds. If this particular set of people got really nailed for some reason and had nothing to do with them or anything, you know, and everybody else feels bad for them, the government could always go and buy their shares of mutual funds. So all the social insurance that's appropriate can, ar can arise here. What we have is, a, is social insurance, uh, social risk generation in what I see happening here. We have, in this, in this crisis, the, the generation of huge amounts of government liabilities, debts, official debts, which are going to be left for, the, for our kids. So. That's not generational risk sharing. What I, what I see going on is, uh, is generational risk making to a large extent in the fiscal policy. I'm not saying it's, that it's never appropriate to hit future generations for something bad that happens to current generations. But what I see going on in the broad sweep of policy is that when bad things happen to current generations, future generations pay. And when good things happen to current generations, future generations don't benefit. Yes. 
Alistair, I think, was that uh, next yeah. to the queue. You've learned me a, a, lot of, a lot of work and activity over the next few months to keep my mutual funds running. And I was, I was wanting to help me with that. I'm, I'm kind of thinking I need some sort of infrastructure. I need a, like an exchange where I can, with good, good systems, that I can post these new funds I'm putting up and people buy into them. And who's going to bear the costs of that infrastructure and how is it going to be financed? And we need to think a bit more about that aspect. You mean the cost of running a federal financial authority? Well, no, no, I'm thinking about the cost of running you know, the, the stock exchange or whatever the equivalent is. Well, there'd be an auction for a lot of these, you know, there'd be an auction market for these securities. And uh, the clearly some part of this the government would bear, but they're going to be shutting down 120 regulatory bodies. So they should have a lot of personnel and a lot of money to be used to do to a smaller set of tasks. So one more question, uh, you, sir. Yes. Well, or we can take some more questions. Go ahead. Okay, I have two questions, brief questions. One about the international cross-border dimension of your mutual fund banking industry. And the other one is about the, was the first one? Was, was sorry, the first one is the international dimension, okay. the cross-border right. dimension. And the second one is the relationship between the, your financial authority and the central bank or the monetary authority. Or would you envisage that these Federal Financial Authority would be residing in the central bank. And connected to that and further to what Tom Welta said, would there be any lender of large resort or any role like that? Well, as a, uh, I'll take the last question. The, the, the central bank or the treasury could always come in and intervene in a mutual fund and buy shares of a mutual fund if they felt, for example, swine flu, if people had not uh, had got, you know, swine flu breaks out. And uh, lots of people die, and the survivors don't end up getting paid off very well because of swine flu. And they want to share that with future generations. So that what they can do is find out who died and just make transfers to their survivors. Or you know, before the, the fund is paid out, they can basically just go and buy shares or contribute to the, to the fund. So uh, on the international dimension, so lender of last resort or social insurer, that, those functions can, can operate under this system as well as the existing system. In the international dimension, uh, and I would keep the Federal Financial Authority separate from the central bank. I think they have separate jobs to do, basically. Uh, the international dimension is that if the US were to adopt this or the UK were to adopt it, uh, the other countries would follow suit, I believe. I believe this would become the norm. The U.S. likes to follow what Britain does. You guys are our older parents. We follow your lead. We nationalized our banks after you nationalized your banks. We will follow what you do. Take the lead here. Uh, James Alexander from M&G Investment Management, runs various mutual funds. Um, I think one of, one, of the, one of the loveliest ideas, one of the best ideas, I think, of your of your limited purpose banking is to is to is to help the public understand that there's no interest payments without risk. I think the FSA and the Federal Reserve and the SEC want to you know want to carry on making people want to perpetuate a myth that you can have interest without risk and, and that what sort of justifies their jobs in effect that they can help guarantee that. But it, it's a total myth. You can't have interest payments on your cash without risk and, and separating the the cash from the the interest, I think, is, is a brilliant idea, and that's that is partly what banks used to do. You know, banks before 
they started lending the money out, they'd just collect it and keep it in a box and charge you a bit for it. And that's, that's, that's what a bank used to be. But obviously, over the last 500 years, that's changed. But I think, I think your, idea, your idea is very good. But I, I do slightly wonder whether, once you get the mutual funds being set up, some mutual funds might get too big to fail or might get systemically important. You know, they're, they're doing a lot of lending to mortgages or doing a lot of lending to corporations. And there's a run on that mutual fund. And the mutual fund has to liquidate those assets very quickly. Okay, it could yeah. cause quite a problem, well, just like we have a problem today. I expect a lot of these mutual funds would be closed-end funds, uh, especially if you, some of it would be investing for the long-term mortgage mutual funds would be uh, closed-end, so that there could no there be no requirement for the people running the funds to actually liquidate the underlying mortgages or to foreclose. Uh, let's suppose it's, if we think about a real estate fund, a closed-end real estate fund where people put. I, I and other people put in money into Alistair's real estate fund, and we just bought, and he uses the money to buy real estate properties. And it's a closed-end fund, and it says how these properties will be uh, managed over time and when they would be wound up and sold off. And so I and other shareholders can sell shares to each other or to other third parties, but we can't force out the management of the mutual fund to to actually uh, sell the properties because there's no redemption option here. With respect to open-end funds, there's a question of a run on, on run on those, and I believe uh, open-end funds should exercise the in-kind redemption option, which is to pay off. They'd be investing in liquid securities, and if there is a, a run, they should be allowed to hand back the actual securities in proportion of what people's share of those securities actually is. So I think we can set up a system that's really uh, safe against runs of both kinds. Suitably scary. That's good. So, uh, yes. Hello. Uh, Robert Pringle. Um, one question and one comment. One question on the cash mutual fund. If, they, if it invests purely in cash only, wouldn't it be simpler just to persuade the branches of the Federal Reserve System to provide checking accounts to everybody because that's the central bank is the ultimate source of cash in the system. And secondly, on a comment, you dismissed the Obama-Volcker proposals. I was sorry to hear that. Because al although they don't go far, as far as you would, or nearly as far, surely in many respects they are along the same lines. Above all, in, in, in throwing down the gauntlet and apparently being willing to take on the banking lobby, and providing a political leadership around the world to other governments, including our own, to do that, and to slow down the system by putting down limits on size as well as banning proprietary trading, things like that. Okay, uh, two good questions. On uh, the federal, the, the government, the government actually running the uh, cash mutual funds, they could potentially do that. They could also run the custody business. Uh, there's economies of scale. Uh, I don't like to see the government too much involved in... It would be a nationalized yeah. system you're proposing. Well... Uh, Essentially. In that, well, in, in, that respect, in that dimension, uh, uh, if you had thousands of cash mutual funds with custody being supervised by the government, or, or maybe even the custody is done by the federal government, uh, versus having all the cash uh, just sitting in the vaults of the federal government, I'm not sure it would be a big difference, and I'm not sure anybody would care too much, um, uh, to tell you the truth. 
I think what's most efficient would be, what's lowest cost would probably be the best answer there. But um, if politically it looks better to not have it, have the government, uh, if, the, if the politicians, I think there's a concern about politicians having access to money they can grab. And so I, I guess I prefer to keep it private in that respect. Now, insofar, you know, what do I think about uh, the Volcker-Obama um, proposals? Well, I think it is great that they are pushing uh, hard to do something more significant. Uh, I think that there was nothing in that uh, in what they are talking about that really gets to the fundamental issue of generating fraudulent securities. There was nothing about disclosure. There's this notion here that for prop trading, for, that proprietary information, forget prop trading, proprietary information is sacred and we can never force the banks to tell us what they're doing with our money. And that is fundamentally untrue. We can force the banks to tell us what they're doing with our money and we have an obligation. Not everybody can beat the market. Socially, we cannot collectively beat the market. And there seems to be this uh, presumption that we can all beat the market. We can't. So, so this private information, which they're holding, it's, which is saying, oh, we can't tell you what we're doing with your money because uh, we've got $750 billion of it from the head of Bear Stearns. Uh, and uh, yeah, I smoke a little dope and I play bridge and I'm off to the golf, but I know what, I'm really good at managing your money, but I can't tell you because if I tell you, I'm going to give away the secret to making you a mint, a fortune. Well, we tried that. It didn't work. It blew up on our faces. We can't let that continue. So disclosure is really important. So I applaud the President and Volcker for doing, uh, uh, moving in the right general direction, but not, they, they need to, to, to get the right answer. So on that note, uh, since we're out of time, we're 10 minutes over, let's go ahead and thank uh, Professor uh, Kotlikoff for our stimulating public life.